Hi, everybody. Thank you for welcoming us into your homes. We are continuing on in our series on the Romans chapter 8. We're doing this deep dive, and we're talking about you in five years. We're trying to imagine the changes that are taking place inside as the Lord helps us to mature into becoming mature followers of Jesus Christ. So uh, we, if, if we looked at chapter 8 from a different perspective, perhaps, or a slightly different perspective, we could put all of the lessons that we have learned into if-then statements. Uh, here are some of the ones that we've looked at so far. If there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, then we can live guilt-free. If we set our minds on what the Spirit desires, then we can live in victory and freedom. If we are adopted children, then we have nothing to fear. If we believe in heaven, then the best is yet to come. If we love and serve God, then we live a transformed life. And today we're looking at verses 31 to 34. It could be put this way. If this is all true, then what do you think? How can we lose? Let's look at the verses, verse 31 to 34. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for these uh, words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that they uh, speak deeply into our lives and they evoke a response from us, a, a response of praise, adoration. Thank you for what you have done for us. Let us always be mindful of this wonderful uh, idea that Jesus Christ is our advocate and that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And if God be for us, who could be against us? So thank you, Father, for that. Help us to respond appropriately to your words to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul in our text is really celebrating God's saving work. It's not so much that he's teaching us a theology of soteriology of salvation. Rather, he's, he's intending to, to cause us to feel something. He's intending to stir up our emotions. He asks several rhetorical questions in our text. Now, rhetorical questions are the kinds of questions that are asked for dramatic effect. Uh, they're asked to make a point. They're not asked to give an answer. In fact, if you answer a rhetorical question, it, it sometimes is a bit peculiar, a bit strange. Uh, because he's, he's writing to stir emotions. Uh, he's writing really, it's really a celebration of grace. So his first statement is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I can think of many that are against us. Now, I, I, I feel like a little bit like the little kid in the class who, at the, the response to rhetorical questions, is putting his hand up and he's saying, oh, me, 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 I know, I know, I know. I know who's against us. Uh, Paul had lots of opposition. He knew who was against him. Uh, 
Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4, verse 9 to 18, so it tells the story. This, this guy cost him a lot of hassle, a lot of trouble. I know that the world is against us, at least the, the mindset of the world or the thinking of the world, the, the godless world. I know the flesh is against us, our, our, our you know, sinful, uh, disordered tendencies. I know the devil is against us. And if you remember our series from the book of Revelation, then you can catch that on Vimeo if you want. From Revelation chapter 13, we know there's two beasts that are against that have, that have been unleashed in the world. And, and one beast is secular authority in rebellion to God. And aren't we seeing that today on the world stage in the Ukraine? Secular authority in rebellion to God without any thought for God is, is the cause of most wars and most calamities and most tragedies in the world today. And that's one of the beasts uh, that the book of Revelations talks about. The book of Revelation, uh, also false religion, married to political power is another of the, uh, the beasts that's released on the world. And, and we see that as an opposition against us. And so while I can name many things that are in opposition against us, uh, Paul asked this question, but really, who? Because all opposition is just frivolous when we consider that God is for us. This is creator God. This is sustainer God. This is redeemer God. This is the all-powerful God. This is the all-knowing God. This is the always-present God. This is the God of the universe. And, and, and considering that he's for us, all of those oppositions, all of those opponents, all of those ones who would come against us are really frivolous and nothing, and they, they, they're of no account. Remember how astoundingly profound these words were in the first century. In the first century, the gods that were worshipped were fickle and they were consumed with their soap opera lives. Uh, they had no concern for humankind at all. They were only concerned about one-upmanship and, and endeavoring to outmaneuver one another. And humankind were simply pawns in their hands. So that was the the first century view of God. And so here Paul, uh, and of course Jesus initiates this understanding, and, 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 and certainly it was true in, in uh, Judaism, but this understanding that God is a loving, heavenly Father who is caring and concerning for us. This must have just blown the minds of the Romans that the Apostle Paul was writing to who were being introduced to this idea of God that would have been completely foreign to their, to their secular understanding, to their religion religious understanding even of the gods of their age. It says that he who did not spare his own son, will he not also give us all things? Now, this is really a reflection or a, a thought back to the story of Abraham uh, who was asked to sacrifice his son. Remember the story, how Abraham in his old age finally had a son. He only had one son, and, and this was a promised child. And then God asked him to go up a mountain and sacrifice his son, to kill his son on an altar. And, and that was a very, very strange thing for God to ask. And yet Abraham, out of obedience, goes up the mountain and prepares to sacrifice his son. And of course, God rescues him at the last moment and says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. And he gives him a ram that's caught in a thicket for, for sacrifice, to, to make that sacrifice that was so important in, in, in that particular system. And Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
And so our text here in Romans chapter 8 picks up the same kind of language, the same kind of verbiage, and says basically, God was willing to do what Abraham was unwilling to do or did not have to do. He has given up his son, his only son. And I think what, what Paul is saying here is that God has, I think the expression that we could use today is, God has skin in the game. You've heard that expression before. Actually, the, I think the expression originated in um, golf matches. Professional golfers uh, golf in a tournament where they call it the skins game. And uh, if no one wins the hole, then the amount of money that was supposed to be given to the winner is carried forward as uh, to the next hole. And whoever won the next hole, it would accumulate the, the amount of the, the kitty, the pot from the previous hole. And that was called the skin. And so when it talks about the skin in the game, it means that we have an investment that we're looking forward to gaining someday, that we have put something into it. And so we understand here from our text that, that God has skin in the game, that God has made a tremendous investment in giving his own son for us. So if he's made that kind of investment, he's not going to walk away from us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to continue his good work in us. It goes on to say, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And now the Apostle Paul is using judicial imagery, uh, imagery from a courtroom. Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, again, uh, like the little kid in the classroom who's answering rhetorical questions, uh, I know who could bring a charge against those whom God has chosen, the accuser of the brethren. That's the devil. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says that he is constantly accusing us. And, and we see that and we hear that in our own lives. When, when our walk doesn't match our talk, when we are disappointed with ourselves in, in what we have done, we, we hear the devil. He, he speaks to us, he accuses us, and he says things like, you'll, you'll never be uh, who God wants you to be. You'll never grow up into being the kind of Christian. You'll never make it. In fact, God's rejected you. He says all these kinds of things. He, he is our accuser, and he, he endeavors to bring charges against us. But this, too, is absolutely frivolous, the Apostle Paul says, because it is God who justifies us. It's God who said to us, we're free. We've measured up to his standard because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In the light of the supremacy of God, all opposition counts for nothing. Now, this goes back, of course, to the first verse of chapter 8, where it said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that word condemnation means penal servitude. There's the, the images coming into the courtroom and uh, the evidence all being brought before the judge and uh, uh, the judge saying, yes, I can see I can see that you are guilty. The, the evidence is unequivocal. It is beyond a shadow of a doubt. You, you are guilty. And Jesus steps up and says, yes, but I have taken the penalty. I have taken the condemnation. I have died. They go free. There is no penal servitude. There's no condemnation. And so what this text is saying is that there's no condem condemnation because Jesus has died for us. Now, Jesus is the only one who has the right to judge us. As a, as a human being, he lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He is the only one who could point a finger at us and say to us, uh, you're guilty, you're condemned, uh, you could have done better, I did better, you could have done. But he chooses not to. He chooses not to. He, because he is the one who could condemn, he chooses not to condemn. This, 
this kind of reflects on that story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember, uh, the woman was brought to Jesus and uh, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law wanted to stone her for her sin. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, the only one who possibly could be in a position to condemn this woman was the person who lived a sinful life. Well, everybody knew that they had sinned, and so they all walked away knowing that they were caught. They, they couldn't condemn her. No one is sinless. And in the same way, Jesus is the one who could have cast the first stone because he lived the sinless life, and yet he chooses not to cast the first stone because he died on the cross for us. Talk about skin in the game. <laughs> Jesus' own skin was in the game. Since he died for us, he has the right to condemn us, but he would never condemn us. The Apostles' Creed goes something like this. He died, he rose, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, our text is very similar. In fact, it, 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 it probably has this kind of creed or confession in mind. In verse 34, he died, he rose, he sits at the right hand of God, and... And this is where it varies from the Apostle Creed. What does he do? He doesn't come to judge the living and the dead. Rather, he is also interceding for us. Do you see the difference? The Apostle's Creed talks about him coming to judge the living and the dead. And, and that's really referring to those who are unbelievers. In our text, it's saying very similar things. He died, he rose, he sits at the right hand of the Father. But instead of coming to judge us, he advocates for us. He talks to the Father about us. He intercedes for us. Instead of judgment, we have intercessor in Jesus because uh, we are believers. We are part of his family. He sits at the right hand. It means that he sits in authority. He uses that position to, in fact, advocate for us. Instead of being the prosecuting attorney, he's become the defense attorney. In chapter 8, verse 26 and verse 27, it tells us that the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. And so we have this picture in Romans uh, chapter 7 and, and chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and that Jesus, the Son, is interceding for us. And, and we get the picture. It looks like we need a lot of help for both the Holy Spirit and Jesus to be interceding for us. And, and you know, I have a picture, and, 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 and this is stretching it too far, perhaps, but I have a picture of God the Father in heaven with Jesus and looking down on earth and seeing me and, and, and uh, Jesus saying, oh, oh, did you see that? And the Father saying, mm, yeah, I saw that. He, uh, he blew it. He, uh, yeah, he probably shouldn't have done that, probably shouldn't have fought that, probably shouldn't have said that. And Jesus speaking up and saying, it's okay, Dad. I got it. I got it. I've taken the punishment for him. We're in good hands. The only one who has the right to judge us is advocating for us. Wow. Any accusation is immediately dismissed. Paul says, what shall we say in response to this? I like how Eugene Peterson says it in the message, how can we lose? Jesus put everything on the line for us. He has been through the worst for us. There is nothing he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us. Who's going to tangle with God? Nobody dare point a finger at us. Right now, Jesus is sticking up for us. 
What shall we say in response to these things? Well, would you take a moment with me and thank the Lord? Let's do that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are interceding for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have taken our condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, that we are free and that we live in good hands. Thank you that the devil, the opposition in this world, those who would hate us and those who would persecute us are nothing compared to who you are. We trust you. We live with confidence because of who you are. Amen. Here's a question of the day for you. How does this passage make you feel? The intent of the passage is to evoke a feeling in you, to get a response from you, from your heart. How does it make you feel? The music will play for a few moments as you think about that, and I'll come back with a concluding comment. I think the apostle in our text is wanting to foster a winning mentality in us. If God be for us, who can be against us? <laughs> you see, it, it starts with focusing our thoughts, our thoughts on who Jesus is, our thoughts on who this loving Heavenly Father is that we serve, this, our thoughts on what Jesus has done for us. You know, I've, every professional athlete knows that in order to win, in order to succeed, in order to do best in the race or the competition, they have to first of all deal with internal stuff. It starts on the inside, and, and, and every professional athlete now is trained to visualize them going through the activity that they'll be involved with and making sure that they're doing it in their minds the right way so when it actually comes to do it, it, it will work out well. And so it's not about outcomes, and it's not about results that the athlete thinks about. It's visualizing, it's thinking on the inside about, about what's really going on and how they're going to accomplish the task. I think the stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works 
make a huge difference in how we behave in the world. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do for us here. He's trying to, to give us a winning attitude about life, about who we are, about who Jesus is, about how secure we are in him. And I think our response has to be to stop and reflect and to think and to make sure that inwardly, in our heart of hearts, we know that we're secure in Jesus Christ. We know that he's on our side, that if God be for us, who can be against us? Our doxology for this series is this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore, Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.